Chapter Two of the Permanent Husband by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was the third of July. The heat and closeness of the air had been quite unbearable. The day had been a busy one for Velchaninoff. He had been walking and driving about without rest, and he had still in prospect a visit in the evening to a certain state councillor who lived somewhere on the Chornaya Richka black stream, and whom he was anxious to drop in upon unexpectedly. At six o'clock our hero issued from his house once more, and trudged off to dine at a restaurant on the Nevsky, near the police bridge, a second-rate sort of place, but French. Here he took his usual corner, and ordered his usual dinner, and waited. He always had a rouble dinner, and paid for his wine extra which moderation he looked upon as a discreet sacrifice to the temporary financial embarrassment under which he was suffering. He regularly went through the ceremony of wondering how he could bring himself to eat such nastiness, and yet as regularly he demolished every morsel, and with excellent show of appetite, too, just as though he had eaten nothing for three days. "'This appetite can't be healthy,' he murmured to himself sometimes, observing his own voracity. However, on this particular occasion, he sat down to his dinner in a miserably bad humour. He threw his hat angrily away somewhere, tipped his chair back, and reflected. He was in the sort of humour that if his next neighbour, dining at the little table near him, were to rattle his plate, or if the boy serving him were to make any little blunder, or, in fact, if any little petty annoyance were to put him out of a sudden, he was quite capable of shouting at the offender, and, in fact, kicking up a serious row on the smallest pretext. Soup was served to him. He took up his spoon, and was about to commence operations, when he suddenly threw it down again, and started from his seat. An unexpected thought had struck him, and in an instant he had realized why he had been plunged in gloom and mental perturbation during the last few days. Goodness knows why he thus suddenly became inspired, as it were, with the truth. But so it was. He jumped from his chair, and in an instant it all stood out before him as plain as his five fingers. "'It's all that hat,' he muttered to himself. "'It's all simply and solely that damnable round hat,' with the crape band round it. That's the reason and cause of all my worries these last days." He began to think, and the more he thought, the more dejected he became, and the more astonishing appeared the remarkable circumstance of the hat. But hang it all, there is no circumstance, he growled to himself. What circumstance do I mean? There's been nothing in the nature of an event or occurrence? The fact of the matter was, nearly a fortnight since, he had met for the first time, somewhere about the corner of the Podacheskia, a gentleman with crape round his hat. There was nothing particular about the man, he was just like all others. But as he passed Velchaninoff, he had stared at him so fixedly, that it was impossible to avoid noticing him, and more than noticing, observing him attentively. The man's face seemed to be familiar to Velchaninoff. He had evidently seen him somewhere, and at some time or other. But one sees thousands of people during one's life, thought Velchaninoff. One can't remember every face. So he had gone on his way, 
and before he was twenty yards further, to all appearances, he had forgotten all about the meeting, in spite of the strength of the first impression made upon him. And yet he had not forgotten, for the impression remained all day, and a very original impression it was, too, a kind of objectless feeling of anger against he knew not what. He remembered his exact feelings at this moment, a fortnight after the occurrence, how he had been puzzled by the angry nature of his sentiments at the time, and puzzled to such an extent that he had never for a moment connected his ill-humour with the meeting of the morning, though he had felt as cross as possible all day. But the gentleman with the crape band had not lost much time about reminding Belchaninoff of his existence, for the very next day he met the latter again on the Nevsky Prospect and again he had stared in a peculiarly fixed way at him. Belchaninoff flared up and spat on the ground in irritation, Russian-like, but a moment after he was wondering at his own wrath. There are faces, undoubtedly, he reflected, which fill one with disgust at first sight, but I certainly have met that fellow somewhere or other. Yes, I have met him before, he muttered again, half an hour later and again, as on the last occasion, he was in a vile humour all that evening, and even went so far as to have a bad dream in the night, and yet it never entered his head to imagine that the cause of his bad temper on both occasions had been the accidental meeting with the gentleman in mourning, although on the second evening he had remembered and thought of the chance encounter two or three times. He had even flared up angrily to think that such a dirty-looking cad should presume to linger in his memory so long. He would have felt it humiliating to himself to imagine for a moment that such a wretched creature could possibly be in any way connected with the agitated condition of his feelings. Two days later the pair had met once more at the landing-place of one of the small Neva ferry-steamers. On the third occasion Belchaninoff was ready to swear that the man recognized him, and had pressed through the crowd towards him, had even dared to stretch out his hand and call him by name. As to this last fact, he was not quite certain, however. At all events, who the deuce is he? thought Belchaninoff, and why can't the idiot come up and speak to me if he really does recognize me, and if he so much wishes to do so? With these thoughts, Vilchaninov had taken a droshky and started off for the Smoly Monastery, where his lawyer lived. Half an hour later he was engaged in his usual quarrel with that gentleman. But that same evening he was in a worse humour than ever, and his night was spent in fantastic dreams and imaginings, which were anything but pleasant. "'I suppose it's bile,' he concluded, as he paid his matutinal visit to the looking-glass. This was the third meeting. Then, for five days, there was not a sign of the man, and yet, much to his distaste, Belchaninoff could not, for the life of him, avoid thinking of the man with the crape band. He caught himself musing over the fellow. "'What have I to do with him?' he thought. "'What can his business in St. Petersburg be? He looks busy, and whom is he in mourning for?' He clearly recognizes me, but I don't know in the least who he is. And why do such people as he is put crape on their hats? It doesn't seem the thing for them, somehow. I believe I shall recognize this fellow if I ever get a good close look at him. 
and there came over him that sensation we all know so well, the same feeling that one has when one can't for the life of one think of the required word. Every other word comes up, associations with the right word come up, occasions when one has used the word come up. One wanders round and round the immediate vicinity of the word wanted, but the actual word itself will not appear, though you may break your head to get at it. Let's see now. It was, yes, some while since. It was, where on earth was it? There was a, oh, devil take whatever there was or wasn't there. What does it matter to me? He broke off angrily of a sudden. I'm not going to lower myself by thinking of a little cad like that. He felt very angry, but when, in the evening, he remembered that he had been so upset and recollected the cause of his anger, he felt the disagreeable sensation of having been caught by someone doing something wrong. This fact puzzled and annoyed him. There must be some reason for my getting so angry at the mere recollection of that man's face, he thought, but he didn't finish thinking it out. But the next evening he was still more indignant, and this time he really thought with good cause. Such audacity is unparalleled, he said to himself. The fact of the matter is, there had been a fourth meeting with the man of the crape hat-band. The latter had apparently arisen from the earth and confronted him. But let me explain what had happened. It so chanced that Velchaninoff had just met, accidentally, that very state councillor mentioned a few pages back, whom he had been so anxious to see, and on whom he had intended to pounce unexpectedly at his country-house. This gentleman evidently avoided Velchaninoff, but at the same time was most necessary to the latter in his lawsuit. Consequently, when Velchaninoff met him, the one was delighted, while the other was very much the reverse. Velchaninoff had immediately buttonholed him, and walked down the street with him, talking, doing his very utmost to keep the sly old fox to the subject on which it was so necessary that he should be pumped and it was just at this most important moment when Velchaninoff's intellect was all on the qui vive to catch up the slightest hints of what he wished to get at, while the foxy old counsellor, aware of the fact, was doing his best to reveal nothing, that the former, taking his eyes from his companion's face for one instant, beheld the gentleman of the crape hat-band walking along the other side of the road and looking at him, nay, watching him, evidently, and apparently smiling. "'Devil take him!' said Velchaninoff, bursting out into fury at once, while the old fox instantly disappeared, and I should have succeeded in another minute. "'Curse that dirty little hound! He's simply spying on me! I'll, I'll hire somebody to—I'll take my oath he laughed at me! Damn him, I'll thrash him!' I wish I had a stick with me. I'll, I'll buy one. I won't leave this matter so. Who the deuce is he? I will know. Who is he? At last, three days after this fourth encounter, we find Velchaninoff sitting down to dinner at his restaurant, as recorded a page or two back, in a state of mind bordering upon the furious. He could not conceal the state of his feelings from himself, in spite of all his pride. He was obliged to confess, at last, that all his anxiety, his irritation, 
his state of agitation generally, must undoubtedly be connected with, and absolutely attributed to, the appearance of the wretched-looking creature with the crape hat-band, in spite of his insignificance. I may be a hypochondriac, he reflected, and I may be inclined to make an elephant out of a gnat, but how does it help me? What use is it to me if I persuade myself to believe that perhaps all this is fancy? Why, if every dirty little wretch like that is to have the power of upsetting a man like myself, why, it's, it's simply unbearable! Undoubtedly, at this last, fifth, encounter of today, the elephant had proved himself a very small gnat indeed. The crepe man had appeared suddenly, as usual, and had passed by Velchaninoff, but without looking up at him this time. Indeed, he had gone by with downcast eyes, and had even seemed anxious to pass unobserved. Velchaninoff had turned rapidly round and shouted as loud as ever he could at him. "'Hey!' he cried. "'You! Crape hat band! You want to escape notice this time, do you? Who are you?' Both the question and the whole idea of calling after the man were absurdly foolish, and Velchaninoff knew it the moment he had said the words. The man had turned round, stopped for an instant, lost his head, smiled, half made up his mind to say something, had waited half a minute in painful indecision, then twisted suddenly round again, and bolted without a word. Velchaninoff gazed after him in amazement. What if it be I that haunt him, and not he me, after all? he thought. However, Velchaninoff ate up his dinner, and then drove off to pounce upon the town councillor at the latter's house, if he could. The councillor was not in, and he was informed that he would scarcely be at home before three or four in the morning, because he had gone to a names-day party. Velchaninoff felt that this was too bad. In his rage he determined to follow and hunt the fellow up at the party. He actually took a droshky, and started off with that wild idea. But luckily he thought better of it on the way, got out of the vehicle, and walked away towards the great theatre, near which he lived. He felt that he must have motion. Also, he must absolutely sleep well this coming night. In order to sleep he must be tired, so he walked all the way home a fairly long walk, and arrived there about half-past ten, as tired as he could wish. His lodging, which he had taken last March, and had abused ever since, apologising to himself for living in such a hole, and at the same time excusing himself for the fact by the reflection that it was only for a while, and that he had dropped quite accidentally into St. Petersburg, thanks to that cursed lawsuit, his lodging, I say, was by no means so bad as he made it out to be. The entrance certainly was a little dark and dirty-looking, being just under the arch of the gateway. But he had two fine large light rooms on the second floor, separated by the entrance hall. One of these rooms overlooked the yard and the other the street. Leading out of the former of these was a smaller room, meant to be used as a bedroom but Velchaninoff had filled it with a disordered array of books and papers, and preferred to sleep in one of the large rooms, the one overlooking the street, to wit. His bed was made for him every day upon the large divan. The rooms were full of good furniture, and some valuable ornaments and pictures were scattered about, but the whole place was in dreadful disorder. 
the fact being that at this time Velchaninoff was without a regular servant. His one domestic had gone away to stay with her friends in the country. He thought of taking a man, but decided it was not worth while for a short time. Besides, he hated flunkies, and ended by making arrangements with his dvornik's sister, Martha, who was to come up every morning and do out his rooms, he leaving the key with her as he went out each day. Martha did absolutely nothing towards tidying the place, and robbed him besides, but he didn't care. He liked to be alone in the house. But solitude is all very well within certain limits, and Belchaninov found that his nerves could not stand all this sort of thing at certain bilious moments, and it so fell out that he began to loathe his room more and more every time he entered it. However, on this particular evening, he hardly gave himself time to undress. He threw himself on his bed, and determined that nothing should make him think of anything, and that he would fall asleep at once. And, strangely enough, his head had hardly touched the pillow before he actually was asleep, and this was the first time for a month past that such a thing had occurred. He awoke at about two, considerably agitated. He had dreamed certain very strange dreams, reminding him of the incoherent wanderings of fever. The subject seemed to be some crime which he had committed and concealed, but of which he was accused by a continuous flow of people who swarmed into his rooms for the purpose. The crowd which had already collected within was enormous, and yet they continued to pour in in such numbers that the door was never shut for an instant. But his whole interest seemed to centre in one strange-looking individual, a man who seemed to have once been very closely and intimately connected with him, but who had died long ago and now reappeared for some reason or other. The most tormenting part of the matter was that Velchaninoff could not recollect who this man was. He could not remember his name, though he recollected the fact that he had once dearly loved him. All the rest of the people swarming into the room seemed to be waiting for the final word of this man. Either the condemnation or the justification of Velchaninoff was to be pronounced by him, and everyone was impatiently waiting to hear him speak but he sat motionless at the table, and would not open his lips to say a word of any sort. The uproar continued, the general annoyance increased, and, suddenly, Velchaninoff himself strode up to the man in a fury, and smote him because he would not speak. Velchaninoff felt the strangest satisfaction in having thus smitten him. His heart seemed to freeze in horror for what he had done, and in acute suffering for the crime involved in his action. But in that very sensation of freezing, at the heart lay the sense of satisfaction which he felt. Exasperated more and more, he struck the man a second and a third time, and then, in a sort of intoxication of fury and terror, which amounted to actual insanity, and yet bore within it a germ of delightful satisfaction, he ceased to count his blows, and reined them in without ceasing. He felt he must destroy, annihilate, demolish all this. Suddenly something strange happened. Everyone present had given a dreadful cry, and turned expectantly towards the door, while at the same moment there came three terrific peals of the hall bell, so violent that it appeared someone was anxious to pull the bell-handle out. 
Velchaninoff awoke, started up in a second, and made for the door. He was persuaded that the ring at the bell had been no dream or illusion, but that someone had actually rung, and was at that moment standing at the front door. It would be too unnatural if such a clear and unmistakable ring should turn out to be nothing but an item of a dream, he thought. But to his surprise it proved that such was nevertheless the actual state of the case. He opened the door and went out on to the landing. He looked downstairs and about him, but there was not a soul to be seen. The bell hung motionless. Surprised, but pleased, he returned into his room. He lit a candle, and suddenly remembered that he had left the door closed, but not locked and chained. He had often returned home before this evening, and forgotten to lock the door behind him, without attaching any special significance to the fact. His maid had often respectfully protested against such neglect while with him. He now returned to the entrance hall to make the door fast. Before doing so he opened it, however, and had one more look about the stairs. He then shut the door and fastened the chain and hook, but did not take the trouble to turn the key in the lock. Some clock struck half-past two at this moment, so that he had had three hours' sleep, more or less. His dream had agitated him to such an extent that he felt unwilling to lie down again at once. He decided to walk up and down the room two or three times first, just long enough to smoke a cigar. Having half-dressed himself, he went to the window, drew the heavy curtains aside, and pulled up one of the blinds. It was almost full daylight. These light summer nights of St. Petersburg always had a bad effect upon his nerves, and of late they had added to the causes of his sleeplessness, so that a few weeks since he had invested in these thick curtains which completely shut out the light when drawn close. Having thus let in the sunshine, quite oblivious of the lighted candle on the table, he commenced to walk up and down the room. Still feeling the burden of his dream upon him, its impression was even now at work upon his mind, he still felt a painful guilty sensation about him, caused by the fact that he had allowed himself to raise his hand against that man and strike him. But, my dear sir, he argued with himself, it was not a man at all. The whole thing was a dream. What's the use of worrying yourself for nothing? Velchaninoff now became obstinately convinced that he was a sick man, and that to his sickly state of body was to be attributed all his perturbation of mind. He was an invalid. It had always been a weak point with Velchaninoff that he hated to think of himself as growing old or infirm, and yet in his moments of anger he loved to exaggerate one or the other in order to worry himself. It's old age, he now muttered to himself, as he paced up and down the room. I'm becoming an old fogey, that's the fact of the matter. I'm losing my memory, see ghosts, and have dreams, and hear bells ring. Curse it all! I know these dreams of old, they always herald fever with me. I dare swear that the whole business of this man with the crepe hat-band has been a dream too. I was perfectly right yesterday. He isn't haunting me the least bit in the world. It is I that am haunting him. I've invented a pretty little ghost story about him, and then climb under the table in terror at my own creation. Why do I call him a little cad, too? 
He may be a most respectable individual for all I know. His face is a disagreeable one, certainly, though there is nothing hideous about it. He dresses just like anyone else. I don't know. There's something about his look. There I go again. What the devil have I got to do with his look? What a fool I am! Just as though I could not live without the dirty little wretch. Curse him! Among other thoughts connected with this haunting crape man was one which puzzled Velchaninoff immensely. He felt convinced that at some time or other he had known the man, and known him very intimately, and that now the latter, when meeting him, always laughed at him because he was aware of some great secret of his former life, or because he was amused to see Velchaninoff's present humiliating condition of poverty. Mechanically, our hero approached the window in order to get a breath of fresh air, when he was suddenly seized with a violent fit of shuddering. A feeling came over him that something unusual and unheard of was happening before his very eyes. He had not had time to open the window when something he saw caused him to slip behind the corner of the curtain and hide himself. The man in the crape hat-band was standing on the opposite side of the street. He was standing with his face turned directly towards Velchaninoff's window, but evidently unaware of the latter's presence there, and was carefully examining the house, and apparently considering some question connected with it. He seemed to come to a decision after a moment's thought, and raised his finger to his forehead. Then he looked quietly about him, and ran swiftly across the road on tiptoe. He reached the gate, and entered it. This gate was left open on summer nights until two or three in the morning. "'He's coming to me,' muttered Velchaninoff, and with equal caution he left the window, and ran to the front door. Arrived in the hall, he stood in breathless expectation before the door, and placed his trembling hand carefully upon the hook which he had fastened a few minutes since, and stood listening for the tread of the expected footfall on the stairs. His heart was beating so loud that he was afraid he might miss the sound of the cautious steps approaching. He could understand nothing of what was happening, but it seemed clear that his dream was about to be realized. Velchaninoff was naturally brave. He loved risk for its own sake, and very often ran into useless dangers, with no one by to see, to please himself. But this was different somehow. He was not himself, and yet he was as brave as ever, but with something added. He made out every movement of the stranger from behind his own door. "'Ah! There he comes! He's on the steps now! Here he comes! He's up now!' Now he's looking downstairs, and all about, and crouching down. Aha! There's his hand on the door-handle. He's trying it. He thought he would find it unlocked. Then he must know that I do leave it unlocked sometimes. He's trying it again. I suppose he thinks the hook may slip. He doesn't care to go away without doing anything. So ran Velchaninoff's thoughts, and so indeed followed the man's actions. There was no doubt about it, someone was certainly standing outside and trying the door-handle, carefully and cautiously pulling at the door itself, and, in fact, endeavouring to effect an entrance. Equally sure was it that the person so doing must have his own object in trying to sneak into another man's house at dead of night. But Velchaninoff's plan of action was laid, 
and he awaited the proper moment. He was anxious to seize a good opportunity, slip the hook and chain, open the door wide, suddenly, and stand face to face with this bugbear, and then ask him what the deuce he wanted there. No sooner devised than executed. Awaiting the proper moment, Belchaninov suddenly slipped the hook, pushed the door wide, and almost tumbled over the man with the crepe hat-band. End of chapter 2